Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We are concluding this uh, amazing book um, and hearing, hearing the very heart of John for, for those that uh, he cared for. And of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 John 5, we'll begin with verse 18. Let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow down. Lord, once again, we would ask that you would illumine our hearts and our minds. That you would teach us from your word. But that we would be more than, than students. We would be adoring children. Hearing words of love from our Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, many of you uh, probably know that uh, I like baseball. And I was hesitant until uh, recently to use any more baseball illustrations, not knowing whether They're going to play this year, and they are going to play. Uh, So I read a story about a veteran American League umpire, Bill Guthrie. And he was uh, working behind the plate at one afternoon. And the catcher for uh, the visiting uh, team was just protesting one call after the other, and, and Guthrie was, was being so patient with him. But finally, after uh, enduring that for a number of innings, he finally said to the catcher, son, you've been a big help to me today and in calling balls and strikes. And I, I appreciate that. But I think I've, I've got the hang of it now. So I'm going to ask you to, to go to the clubhouse and uh, whoever is in there, teach them how to take a shower. He's, and then he threw him out of the game. Now, 
remember, throughout this book, we have, uh, we have seen that John has basically been addressing the teachings of a heretic of Serinthus. And uh, he has done it again and again. And here at the end of the book, basically, he is saying, Serinthus, your presence is no longer needed on this field. Go to the showers. He's given the, the final stamp of that which is true. And he's doing it with with some final affirmations that in some ways summarize the whole letter. Now, if you remember, from the very beginning, we saw that the book's purpose, uh, uh, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He really wanted them to know that. He wanted those who were saved, those who were in Christ, trusting in him alone for eternal life. He wanted them to be assured and to be able to live as children of the the living God. Conversely, he wanted to make sure that those who weren't saved, couldn't kid themselves any longer, couldn't fool themselves at least if they were willing to listen to his teachings. And that's what I want for all of you. If you're in Christ, I so want you to be assured of that and to live as as the people of God. But if you're not in Christ, I want you to know that as well. I, I can't change your heart. God can. But I don't want anyone uh, to feel like the, the waters are muddy as to whether I am saved or not. John is ending his book with three things, three affirmations. And you always want to listen closely uh, to the last things that uh, the authors of letters say when they're writing. So here's the first affirmation is that we know uh, the one born of God does not continue in sin. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So this phrase, uh, born of God, is in a a tense in talking about those who who are saved. It's in a tense that means that, that something took place, but it has a continuing effect. So it didn't just take place back there, and then it's, it's over. But it happened, and now it affects everything after that. So being born of God wasn't just a, a, a transient religious ex- experience. 
When, when new birth in Christ takes place, we remain a child of God with permanent privileges and permanent obligations. So what are the, what are the obligations? It's not that we keep our salvation by our works any more than we came to Christ by our works, not at all. But he does say that we are not to keep on sinning. Um, that phrase is used several times. And in some of the older versions uh, of uh, the uh, translations, it would say they don't, that we don't sin. Well, the newer translations are better in, in that where they say we don't keep on sinning. It doesn't mean that a, a believer can't fall into sin. It means if you're really a believer, you won't stay there. You won't keep on sinning. So, so what's the difference? Well, it's a major difference. If anything, he is saying that we won't continue in it indefinitely. It shouldn't be habitual. When, it, when a, a believer sins, it should be interrupted by, by repentance, by forgiveness, by restoration. That should interrupt rather than just, just staying there in that sin and not dealing with it. So the real believer won't continue in it indefinitely. Imagine this. Uh, uh, you're, you're on a, an airplane, and the pilot uh, says, uh, I, I want to give you a smooth flight today. Now, there's some uh, thunderstorms out there, and so we're going to take a little detour uh, around those, those storms, and, uh, but we'll get to our destination, and then he gives the approximate time. Somehow, they always end up getting there ahead of time. You know, I don't know how that works like when they go around these, these big storms. So that's one scenario. That's one that if you've flown, you've probably heard at some point. Let me give you a different scenario. Suppose the, the pilot comes on and says, you know what? There are some major thunderstorms out there today. And I am happy to tell you, we are going to go right through the middle of them. <laughs> In fact, some of them aren't lined up, so I might take a detour and, and hit a few extra ones here on our, on our flight today. Now, that wouldn't be in good character for a good pilot. So let's, let's take it back over to uh, uh, the spiritual realm. Sin for the child of the living God, it, it's, like, it's like turbulence. We're going to hit some, but we should try to avoid it and definitely not stay in it and definitely not steer towards that turbulence, that, that sin. John is saying, 
That's the nature of one born of God. We won't do that. We won't be attracted to that to the point where we just stay there and continue in it. Over in Romans 7, Paul talks about his struggle. He is so honest there. And I just want to read through it and comment on it. Because here he is, and I'm convinced he was already a believer at this point. But he's saying, look, here's what I'm experiencing. He's saying, this is, this is not... It's not where I want to be. But then he describes it. He says this in verse 15 of Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You ever felt that way? I I know what's right. Why can't I steer around this turbulence? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sometime, if you really want to get the flavor for that struggle of uh, struggling with sin to stay away from it, get a King James Bible and read this. Because he's, it's so confusing, uh, no offense to the King James Bible people, but it, it says the good I want to do, I don't do, the, 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 that which I don't want to do, I do. And, you know, and it, it's the back and forth. But I think in, in some ways that describes it even better. Because it's so hard sometimes. Verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a, a, a law that when I want to do uh, right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's why I'm convinced he's a Christian at this point. No unbeliever ever says that. I delight in the law of God, my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Have you ever been there? I'm such a wretch. What's the deal here? I should be beyond this. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then, he he bursts into worship. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, isn't that an amen? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our only hope. So when we hit that turbulence and say, I feel like I'm being, still being pulled toward that, I, 
I kind of want to go there. That's what he was saying. He said, that's what I feel like. Who's going to deliver me? And see, he doesn't stay in despair, does he? Instead of staying in despair over his sin and over seeming like not having a victory, he goes back to Christ. And he says, that's it. That's my only hope. (laughs) What the choir said, Jesus loves me. That's my hope. Paul struggled with sin. But he passed the the three tests that we have talked about in, in this book. And he understood that everything else that he had written in Romans about you know, the theological terms, the justification, the sanctification, all he knew that was all real. And that's why he even could be so honest about the struggle he still had. But that's also why he comes to the conclusion that it's all about Jesus. So there's a second thing we can know, an affirmation, verse 19, we know to whom we belong. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you see what that last phrase is? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know what it's saying? The devil has the whole world in his hands. Isn't that shocking? That's what he's saying. But he's also saying... That may be true, but I belong to somebody else. I'm not in his hands. So how can we know these things? Well, the context of the whole letter, are uh, we've, we've talked about those three tests, and I didn't make up these terms. Lots of commentators use them. The moral test of obedience, the doctrinal test, believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the social test, and that's love for other believers. So why isn't there just one test? Well, because you you can know doctrine and not know Christ. We heard that in the story of Anne Can It Be, right? (laughs) Two preachers trying to trying to make something happen, trying to make revival happen, and their own hearts weren't revived. They knew doctrine, they just didn't know Christ. Or you can say you believe, but if you don't love other believers, your actions are denying what you say you believe. So the three tests are basically three witnesses as to whether your faith is genuine. So John then gives another reason to be confident. Uh, The first reason was verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Talking about the believer, the one who's born again. Then he goes on, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. In this case, he who was born of God protects him. That's talking about Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, 
he indicates the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So John is saying that's why those tests are, are so important. If our salvation and keeping it depended uh, totally on our ability to pass tests, we could not have assurance. Instead, our assurance depends upon the power of Jesus Christ to hold on to us, to preserve us. The fact that we pass these tests is just evidence of the power of Christ in us. So let's apply this. What if, what if you find yourself in a habit of sin, but you claim to be a believer? Well, first of all, make sure you're in a relationship with Christ. Look at the test. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe this? Do I seek obedience? Do I really love other believers? And then if you go through those, but you say, but I'm still, I'm still stuck here. If you can't seem to get out of that sin, you're probably relying on your own strength. Martin Luther was at that point. We, were, we sang his hymn earlier. He tried, uh, Luther tried everything that his religion recommended and his religion failed him because religion's ability to help depends completely on man's own ability. So Martin Luther was in despair. He described it when he gave us religion when he gave up religion and he, he came to Christ in that hymn we sang earlier, A Mighty Fortress. He said this, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. That's where he was. And then the answer we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It's he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, the Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Do you see, that's what took him out of despair. He realized, Martin Luther realized, I can't win this battle. The Lord of hosts must win it for me, if it is to be won. John then presents the third affirmation. Verse 20, we know that Jesus uh, who Jesus is and, and what that means. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. The Son of God has come into the world. Now, shouldn't that have been the first of the three affirmations? You know, if we're thinking logically, you might think that. But I think John wanted to leave them with that. To work back to that. Because that's basically how he began the book and he bookends his letter with that same truth. But that's the foundation of the three affirmations. So what we see is Jesus giving us understanding of God and understanding of salvation is only in him. Now, again, that strikes at the very heart of the Gnostic heresy that we talked about with Serenthus. He would have said it, yeah, it's some secret. You got, we, we have the secret, we'll tell it to you. And John says salvation is not a secret. There isn't a secret of how to know God. He's exposing what the Gnostics called the secret and saying, knowing God is knowing Christ. Again, that's how he started the book. He said... He started the book by saying, yes, I was with him. I saw him. And you can experience this. And you can experience him in the same way. And then, after that climax... You know, you're writing the book and you think, well, that's all, that's all that needs to be said. But he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. <laughs> Who would ever say that at the end? <laughs> why, why would he end with, with that? It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're driven to praise and then he says, my little children, because he loved them so much. Keep yourself from idols. And that's the last thing he said in the letter. What's the deal? Well, John is writing to a group of people who were in a city of idols. The god of their city was Artemis or or Diana. Hundreds of people made livings off of the huge temple there. I tried to figure out the size of the temple And uh, the best I could figure is if you take our whole parking lot front to back and bottom all the way up there, and that was just one building. It was a big old temple. And hundreds of people made their living off of it, the, you know, the idol makers and the temple prostitutes and all kinds of people that, that attended that. And John is writing to people who have idols all over their property and was given a a final warning. In light of everything I've said about the true God and Savior, don't go back to them. They can't do anything for you. When I taught in India a number of years ago, I was teaching through the book of Jeremiah and we got to a, a section about idols. And we American preachers, whenever we talk about idols, 
we, we start saying, yeah, you know, things like money and fame and power and things like that. And um, one of uh, the students raised their hand and said, uh, um, in, in our country, there are Christians who, if you go into their home, and they're, they're real Christians, but if you go into their home, they may have an altar in their back room with idols on it that they worship. I was very humbled because I, I realized, well, of course, you know, I don't have to explain idols to them. They, they, they get that. And they got it as well. Now, I'm not worried about you having idols in your back room. I'm not saying you don't, but I'm not worried about it. But here in America, we, we love our idols. They're just not the same kind as in some other countries. John Calvin said, our heart is a factory for idols. He said that a long time ago. He was right back then. He's still right. We can crank them out. Any effort to earn our salvation makes an idol. Our idols are anything that takes the place of Jesus or diminishes him. It can be a very good thing. It can be a relationship. It can be a wonderful thing. But if it takes the place of Jesus, our hope, it's an idol. And idol worshipers won't inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what an idol is like. I've been going through a lot of things in, in my office and finding old things and old pictures and so on. Uh, and I found uh, some old pictures of, of friends down through the years in the ministry. Imagine, and, and they all bring wonderful feelings uh, when, I, when I see these. Otherwise, I wouldn't have saved them. They, they'd have been in the trash long ago. So, but but they bring wonderful feelings. And imagine that I, I put a, a picture of a friend on, on my desk and I'm, I'm just thinking back through the memories and just kind of basking in that. And what if that friend came to visit me? He came into my study and he was right there. And I kept looking at the picture and didn't even acknowledge that he was there. When that picture can do nothing for me, there's no fellowship in that. There is no help. There's no love. Imagine that. The symbol would have become a substitute for the reality. Whatever the friend could have done for me isn't done because the picture can do nothing. To substitute 
anything or anyone or our own view of religion, to substitute any of that for Christ is to worship an idol. And it will ultimately leave you empty and without hope. Let's never, never fall into the trap of substituting something man calls religion for the reality of knowing Christ. The reality of being a child of the living God. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we, we, don't, we don't need religion. We don't need idols that our heart would manufacture. We need you. Will you come to us? Will you give us hearts that can receive you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.